Thank you, brother, for leading us in those songs. Uh, to start out, I have a, a confession to make to you, uh, something just to be totally transparent. Um, I realized that on my slide here, I have praiseworthy split into two words, and at the last minute, I realized that that should be one word. And so, those of you out there that are much sharper in editing and uh, more had better grammar than I, uh, uh, I do ask humbly ask for your forgiveness for that. Uh, Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, Lord, you are good. You are gracious and righteous and holy. Lord, we are humbled to be able to come into your presence, to be able to uh, worship you, to have the honor to be able to worship you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you lived that righteous life that we failed to live, Lord, that you suffered and died on the cross, Lord, that you were obedient even to the death of the cross. Lord, we praise you that you are our king and our savior and our high priest. Lord, we love you. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you have revealed these things to us, Lord. That you have given us and that you have regenerated us and that you have brought us to life in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to be able to to feel the impact of these truths today, Lord, that you'd help us to understand these things better. Or to pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, the choices of television shows that we had were very limited. Um, We only had a few channels and uh, to choose from, and anything that would be interesting for a kid uh, like me to find a watch was a real challenge. Um, Anything that would interest me, you know, for the most part, would be done, would be put on right after school. And one of my favorite shows to watch after school was an educational program on PBS uh, called The Electric Company. Anybody here remember The Electric Company? Oh, yes. Okay, good, good. Um, I loved that show. And one of the reasons why I loved The Electric Company is because they had a a segment on there featuring Spider-Man. Everybody remember that? Okay, and that was the closest things that we got to a Marvel Universe when I was a kid. So we waited for that to come on every single time. Now, aside from Spider-Man, there were a lot of other short segments on the show that would be featured. Um, Some of them were live action, like like Spider-Man, and some of them were were animated. And all of them, uh, they focused on educating on, on some topic or some letter or some word in some way. And one of those segments, another one of my favorites was The Adventures of Letterman. Okay? And I, and I can still hear it when it comes on. I can hear Joan Rivers in the narrating voice. The Adventures of Letterman. Coming on there. <clears throat> and, and Gene Wilder, he was, he was the voice of Letterman. And Letterman was the, the superhero of the story. Okay? And, and he sported a Letterman sweater. And on that sweater was... A letter, right? There was a letter that was on his letterman sweater, and he was letterman. And the letter, in some way, would play into the plot as the letter of the day, or in some word that would be featured on the show for that day. And so the letter would change from segment to segment. Now there was a there was a villain in these stories, and and his name uh, was Spellbinder, and he had a magic wand, right? And in every single episode, the plot was virtually the exact same thing. Spellbinder, he would be annoyed by the things that were relatively peaceful in the world. And so he would take his wand, 
And he would change a single letter in the word of the day. And by doing so, he would cause confusion and chaos to break out. For example, the story would, would, would be of showing people in a restaurant and they would be eating custard. Right? A nice creamy custard. And they would be enjoying a nice bowl of custard. And Spellbinder would take his wand and would change the C in custard to an M. And then suddenly, instead of people eating spoons full of custard, they would be eating spoons full of hot, spicy mustard. Now, I know that there are some in here that don't like mustard. My wife's winking at me right now. So I think they can see right away that how this would be awful and chaotic. I also know that there are some people in here that just love mustard. And I've personally witnessed some people absolutely abuse a sandwich with mustard. (laughs) But I think we can all agree that eating spoonfuls of hot, spicy mustard is a little too much. And it wouldn't be as pleasant as eating a nice bowl of creamy custard. It would be something that we would avoid. And so... This is where Letterman would come into play. He would see the people in misery, and their faces red hot from eating hot, spicy mustard, and he would rip the C off of his shirt, and he would replace the M with his C, and he would change mustard back into custard. So the people in the restaurant could then delight again in what they were eating. Now, I think this really illustrates the importance of how changing one small detail can affect the way that we experience it. It's a curiosity with how language works that changing only a single letter can change the entire meaning of the word. And that was the letterman, that was the lessons that we were being taught in the letterman shorts. How a single letter, a single detail like that in a word, needs to be played careful attention to so that the correct meaning and the intended meaning is communicated. And sometimes we get in a hurry and we miss those details. While reading, and we can get confused, make mistakes, and we mistake one word for a different word, and it gives to us a completely different meaning. Now, I think this lesson can translate and be useful for us when it comes to paying attention to the details of our doctrine. Because if we don't examine the details in our doctrine closely, we may misunderstand them completely. We have to make sure that we are discovering the details and have the correct meaning of each word in the text so that we arrive at a correct understanding. But sometimes the mistakes in doctrine don't come from just misunderstanding the text or not getting the meaning of certain words correct. Sometimes it comes because the doctrine simply gets ignored. It's not studied enough or talked about enough. When that happens, our hearts miss out. and aren't being comforted by the amazing treasures of who God is. For example, I know some brothers and sisters who, before they started coming to RBC, had very little understanding or even a basic awareness of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And after talking about it with them and helping them understand that God is all-powerful and in control of all things in the universe, their hearts began to take comfort into that. And it helps with their anxiety or their frustration over why certain events happen the way they do. Learning about God's sovereignty has an impact in our hearts in a profound way. Our hearts begin to rest in his mighty sovereignty. It strengthens our faith and increases our trust in him. 
frustrations and anxieties in our hearts begin to melt away. Now, oftentimes, correcting or exposing these misunderstandings or ignored doctrines, it doesn't have to be done from the ground up. Uh, Very rarely do we uh, surprise a Christian with some profound new doctrine they've never heard before in some way. Uh, Sometimes it just takes pointing out one or two little details that can change the entire picture for us, which takes it from a mere fact to feel head knowledge to something that ends up having a profound impact on our hearts and causes us to fall down and worship God. Even in the example of God's sovereignty, people are often aware that the Bible describes God as omnipotent and all-powerful. They just fail to take it to the next logical step and apply that truth to the rest of reality and let that truth penetrate their hearts. Now, one such doctrine that I believe that our hearts need, and our hearts need this, one that gets misunderstood because we ignore it, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the first question that comes to me is, why do we tend to ignore this doctrine? Why do we allow our hearts to miss out on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Now, one of the reasons why I believe the Holy Spirit gets ignored is because people can get exaggerated about his work and how his presence manifests in our lives. And some of you might know what I mean. Um, Have you ever been talking to another brother or sister and it seems like every other thing they experience or every other impulse that they have is the Holy Spirit in one way or another? And, and these things that they go just beyond the basic sanctifying work that he does in his life. Um, I'm talking about the Spirit guiding us in every mundane action, even when we drive to Taco Bell and order another Taco Supreme. Well, the Spirit just led me to order a party pack just for me. I'm telling you, the Spirit was guiding me in that. I was going to go to Pan, Panera, but then the Spirit told me to go to Taco Bell. And you're not sure... When you get into those conversations, if people are joking or not. So what we do is we quickly, we change the subject. And we start talking about how amazing Jesus is. Now, that's a safe subject. And just like that, we get uncomfortable about dress, addressing misconceptions. And we simply do not talk about him. Now another reason I think we ignore it is because the Holy Spirit isn't necessarily at the forefront of our theology. And therefore, we misunderstand who he is. God the Father and God the Son tend to be put at the forefront of our thoughts. Our minds naturally meditate upon them as we meditate on who God is. The Son especially. I mean, after all, we are called Christians. And so we naturally, we identify with Christ. We proclaim him as our king. Christ is our savior and our high priest. We display the cross as a symbol of his suffering and our allegiance to follow him in that suffering. We proclaim Christ to people. He is the one whom we are trying to draw people to. So his work and who he is is the focal point of our witness. And it should be. Likewise, God the Father is the one who sent the Son. He's the one who adopts us as sons and daughters and provides for us. Our prayers are directed and addressed, for the most part, to the Father. And then they end in the name of the Son. And the Holy Spirit can get all but forgotten in that. It seems that the Holy Spirit doesn't share the same intensity of the spotlight like the Father and the Son do. Look at our hymn books and our song books. 
They're filled with songs about the Father and the Son. But how many songs can you name, if any, that praise specifically the Holy Spirit? And I think this can add to the reason why people misunderstand who he is. He's just not featured and talked about like the Father and the Son are. But I also think it's because we have difficulty to understand how we relate to him. Even the names Father and Son are relatable names. And when we think of those, we think of, of in terms of a relationship. And our hearts are going to attach to them. And our hearts are going to be impacted by who they are. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think we can completely miss out or minimalize the reality that we have a relationship with him. So this morning, I want us to examine our praiseworthy relationship with the Holy Spirit. I want to do this because I believe that our hearts need to be impacted by who he is. I want our hearts to be impacted by the truth of his glorious work. I want to help us to correct some of the confusion that we have about who he is and turn the mustard as something that we would avoid back into custard for us so that we can delight fully in who God is. This morning, I want our hearts to be impacted by the reality that we have a relationship with him that is personal. We have a relationship with him where he is present in our lives. We have a relationship that is worthy of our praise. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is personal and present and worthy of our praise. So to start off, I think understanding that we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit starts with seeing him as a person. Now, I think it's important that we do see the Holy Spirit as a person and that we don't make the mistake in thinking of him as an emanation or a force or an apparatus or something that can be handled. I think the mistake can be made uh, sometimes because he's described in places like in Acts 2.17 as being poured out on. And certain other material metaphors like water, and it brings images to the mind of something that can be handled. But we can't make that mistake in thinking that it's just merely a force or a power or an emanation. Now, in order to understand that the Holy Bible is a person, we need, or the Holy Spirit is a person, we need to go to the Bible. So that's what we'll do. So please, uh, if you would, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 16. And while you do that, I am going to take a drink. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, and look with me starting in verse 7. Gospel of John, chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to take note of how Jesus refers to the Spirit in a very distinct and personal way. Starting in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And now jump down to verse 13 with me. Jesus continues, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. 
For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In this passage, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as he no less than 12 times in this passage. Now, I don't think the Lord Jesus would be referring to the the Holy Spirit as he if we weren't supposed to understand him as a person. In fact, he appears to be deliberately making that point. The repetition of that word, he. So I think it's pretty clear from this passage alone that the Holy Spirit is a person. But we also see in this passage another very important detail that indicates that he is a person. Look with me in verse 13. We see other attributes of a person. He speaks, and he hears, and he will declare. I think one of the reasons why we have a hard time fully seeing the Holy Spirit fully as a person is because we get very little direct dialogue from him in the scriptures. We get a lot of verses of the Father speaking. We get four gospels filled with the exact words of Jesus but we get very little quotes from the Holy Spirit. And I say very little because it's not entirely absent in scriptures. Uh, Put one finger in the the Gospel of John and turn over with me to the book of Acts chapter 13. Book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and look with me at verse 2. Read along with me. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I wanted us to look at that to see that it is a direct quote, that it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking. Here we read a direct command from the Holy Spirit to the early disciples. It's a a rare quote, but there it is, right there in the scripture, of him speaking. Now, we can also forget that all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So today, we hear the inspired words of the Holy Spirit speak to us through the giving of scripture. Now, I think it's important that we consider that the Holy Spirit speaks and hears because those are important, essential aspects of a person. Impersonal things do not speak or hear. And when we consider being in a relationship with someone, the ability to communicate is essential. And we can see that he speaks and that he hears. Now, in addition, in addition to these things we find in the Gospel of John, there are also passages uh, that give us further evidence uh, that the Holy Spirit is a, pers- is, is a person. And I just want to give us a few brief examples. We don't have to turn there. You can turn back to the Gospel of John, chap- chapter uh, 16 right now. Um, but as you do that, just listen to a couple of these examples. Um, first, uh, he has a mind. The Holy Spirit has a mind. This is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Paul writes, for he knows a person's thoughts. For who knows a person's thoughts except the the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He also has a will. In that very same letter, in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, 
The Apostle Paul writes in speaking about spiritual gifting, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who are portions to each one individually as he, the Holy Spirit, wills. And lastly, and this one should affect our hearts more than it does, is Ephesians 4.30. It tells us that he can be grieved. Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, why is it important to show that the Holy Spirit is a person? It's important because it establishes an important aspect that there is a relationship with him. Relationships don't happen with impersonal objects. And we think very differently about a person than an impersonal thing. For example, one of the prevailing evils in this country is abortion. And one of the arguments that's being made, and it's not the only one, but it's a dominant theme, is the issue of personhood. This issue of personhood is a big deal. Those on one side of the issue are trying to argue that the fetus is just a collection of cells and therefore not a person. And that's an important detail to them. And also to us who oppose abortion. Because whether or not it's a person makes a huge moral and emotional difference. If they are forced to see the person, to see the reality that a fetus is a person, then you're killing and murdering a person. But if it's just a collection of cells, then it's not really a problem at all. There is no moral problem with that. And the emotional connection just doesn't matter. Now, that's not the entirety of the issue, but it's an aspect of it that I think demonstrates how the heart disposition changes when we are dealing with a person and not something else. If the Holy Spirit is only an emanation or a power and not a person, that radically affects how our hearts respond in that relationship with him. And God has created us as relational beings. There's a certain value that we place on a relationship with a person as opposed to something that is impersonal. We respond differently. We have a different fundamental heart disposition toward another person that simply doesn't apply to material things, no matter how attached we might think we are to them. No one worries if their hairbrush or their toolbox is being neglected or grieved. At least, we shouldn't. In our relationship with the Holy Spirit, just like our relationship with any other person, there is a mutual heart attachment. And that heartfelt relationship can be strengthened or damaged depending on how we are treating that relationship. I think we need to be confronted with the reality that when we aren't walking in the way that reflects a new life in Christ, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, it's damaging a relationship that we have with him. And the more we understand him as a person, and our hearts grow attached to him as a person, the more sensitive we are going to be about grieving him. And when we do that, and we are living a holy life, then we can enjoy the loving relationship that we have with him. Because he is also a comforter and a helper And he guides us and teaches us. And he aids us by making intercession for us in prayer. 
Just as Jesus makes intercession for us as high priest, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in a way that we express our prayers to the Father. Our dependent prayer comes through our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And all these things should impact our hearts so that our desire is not to merely acknowledge him, that he exists, but to honor and obey and love and adore him. But our relationship with the Holy Spirit just isn't confined to understanding that he is a person. In order to have a complete picture of why and how our hearts should be overflowing with love and adoration for him, we need to see how our relationship with him is also one where he is active and present in our lives. Now, one of the remarkable things about the Holy Spirit is he is the most active and present of the Godhead here on earth. The Holy Spirit is the active presence of God on earth. He is the executor of the will of God here on earth. He is the one that acts. We, we observe this all through scripture. Whenever there is an action taken by God in this world, the Holy Spirit is the one who does it. And that isn't to say that the Father and the Son aren't involved. They most certainly are. But it is the Holy Spirit who executes the will of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. His presence and his work are seen and felt each and every day. And not just by those who are believers. One of the things that I think that most believers and every unbeliever misses is that the Holy Spirit has a relationship with all people. Most believers would assume that the Holy Spirit isn't active or present in anyone else's life who isn't a believer. But that is not true. It's not a salvific relationship. And what I mean by that, it's not a relationship like believers have, where they have been brought into the church and they have been drawn and made in union with Christ as Savior and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it is still a relationship. And this relationship is seen in a couple of different ways. First, the Holy Spirit uh, has a relationship with the world and creation. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to the the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, something that I find amazing is that the Holy Spirit is the first distinct person in the Godhead that we read about in the creation story. We read in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning, and we should all know these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right away, we see that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, is involved in creation. But we also see the Spirit's involvement in the special counsel that occurred just before the creation of man. Look down at Genesis 1.26, another very familiar verse to us. It says, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I have no problem in my Trinitarian understanding of God to see that this has a reference to all three persons of the Godhead, communing together and involved in the decision to create man. And that's amazing to me. Because ever since then, there has been a relationship with the Holy Spirit with man. 
a relationship as our creator. And not only as our creator, but as our sustainer as well. Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30 says this, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. It is the Holy Spirit who gives and sustains life. Now my purpose in bringing this up is to show that even at the very beginning of all things in the universe, the Holy Spirit has intimately been involved. From the creation of the cosmos to the formation of our planet and all things on it and even into the creation of man. And his sustaining power is present in all things. But the Holy Spirit just doesn't sustain all people. He actually imbues them with a basic understanding of morality as well. Uh, You can say that the Holy Spirit has a relationship to the world in what theologians call common grace. The Apostle John refers to this in the Gospel of John as the light that is in every man. The Apostle Paul in Romans spells this out for us in Romans 2.14. And he says it without a doubt that all men have the moral law written in their hearts. He says this, this is Romans 2.14 and 15. For when the Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And now because of that, because he imbues us with this basic morality, and because the law is written on all people's hearts, the common grace of the Holy Spirit has allowed the creation of governments and laws. Romans 13.1 1 Peter 2, 13 through 5, detail these in our obedience to submitting to those laws and those governing ordinances. Those things are ordained and given by God. And these laws and these governing bodies, they serve us good. They keep the absolute worst wickedness of man's depraved heart from running rampant in the world. That's common grace and it's given to all people. And we as the people of God should appreciate and praise him for making this world tolerable to live in. But there's one specific way that the Holy Spirit has a a relationship uh, with the world that is spiritually significant. Uh, Turn with me back in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples something about the Holy Spirit's relationship with the world. Let's look again and read uh, verse 7. Let's start in verse 7. This is verse 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit has a relationship to the world in convicting it of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, an, an entire sermon can re, be, re, uh, be preached on unpacking all that's contained in these uh, verses, verses 8 through 11. Um, and there's a variety of opinions out there of what these verses mean. Um, and in, in the time that I have this morning, I can't fully go into all those different interpretations and those arguments. 
Um, but what I want to do is I want to give us a basic understanding of the meaning and then talk about why we should care uh, and how this truth affects us. Um, now, that word convict, we see that word convict. Uh, that word convict also means expose uh, or rebuke or reprove. Uh, but the sense that this is being used in, uh, the sense it's being used is to bring shame to. So the Holy Spirit is bringing shame. And it's bringing shame to these things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. So Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bring shame to the world's sin, the world's righteousness, and the world's judgment. So you might be able to read this, that uh, he will convict the world of its sin, of its righteousness, and of its judgment. Now, in verse 9, Jesus says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Uh, And what I believe Jesus is getting at uh, is believing in Jesus means believing in what Jesus says about the world's sin and the world's need for him. The world is rejecting him because they are being exposed in their sin. They continue to walk in darkness. And then in verse 10, we read concerning righteousness. And he says, because I go to my Father and you will see me no longer. Now again, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness. And the basic understanding of the statement is that it will convict the world or bring shame to the world's empty righteousness. He is shaming the world's empty righteousness. The world is convicted of this because they are intent in believing that their own righteousness is enough. But Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness and fully satisfied the wrath of God. And the proof of this is in the resurrection and the glorification of Christ as he now sits in the throne in heaven. That is why he says, because I go to my Father and you will see me no longer. And then in verse 11, the last phrase that we get is concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now again, It's the Holy Spirit shaming or convicting the world of its judgment because the judgment of this world is extremely flawed and it's saturated in spiritual blindness. Those who were believed to be righteous in the time of Jesus, they were considered to be righteous, the Pharisees, they were considered to be the righteous and that their judgment was supreme. And those are the ones who crucified the Lord as a result of, of their flawed judgment and their spiritual blindness. And now Jesus is linking this to the ruler of this world, which most scholars agree that he's talking about Satan Satan here. Okay, and why is he doing that? Uh, Because all false judgment is related to the one who's been a liar from the beginning, and the world follows after him in that exact same pattern. So the Holy Spirit is exposing or shaming the world of its sin and its righteousness and its judgment. And that's an important relationship to understand. Now, why is it that these things matter to us? Why do we concern ourselves with the Holy Spirit's relationship with the rest of the world? What does that have to do with us? Well, it has a great deal to do with us. First, at one point in all of our lives, we were going according to the ways of the world. Every single one of us. Before we came into faith in Jesus, we were spiritually blind. We were living in our own righteousness and believing that our own judgments were correct and we had no need of a savior. Because the glorious Holy Spirit of truth convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, 
When he opened our eyes and opened our hearts to the truth of the gospel, we were exposed and we felt that shame and he showed us our need for Jesus. The work that the Holy Spirit does in this is a glorious mercy to the entire world. And most people miss it. But of course, only those who've had the veil of darkness removed from their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Jesus, we can marvel at it and we can praise him for his grace and love toward us. And that truth should fill our heart with thankfulness and adoration toward who this Holy Spirit is. And this thankfulness and this reality of convicting work, it leads us to the second thing. It is instrumental in empowering us to be effective witnesses of the gospel. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is one that by, empower, by the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we continue this convicting work in the world. The Spirit through us continues the, word, the work of exposing the world's sin. Because we bear witness that all that Jesus spoke about sin is true. And that there is a need for him. We continue with the work of witnessing to Christ's righteousness in abandoning any of our own. We continue with the work of exposing the foolishness of this world's wisdom and pointing them to the triumph of Christ on the cross. This is all by the glorious empowerment of the Holy Spirit and our relationship with him. And not only in our lives, but the Holy Spirit is pressing down even now and convicting all the unbelievers, and they know it, even though they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that is why we get the reaction that we do when we bear witness to the truth and we witness about Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the final point this morning. The relationship, a relationship with the Holy Spirit and Christ's people. Now so far we've seen in, uh, in this passage that the Holy Spirit is a person and not an emanation or a force. And therefore we can have a relationship with him as a person. And I've talked about how the, the Holy Spirit has a relationship to the entire world and all people in general. And now I want to talk about the Holy Spirit has a very special relationship with the people of God. And to start off, I'd like for us to just take, take a moment and uh, talk about the, the Holy Spirit's role in the Godhead uh, and the relationship that he had with the early disciples. And then show us how that pertains to us. Now, the Holy Spirit's role in the Godhead is to glorify Christ. This is the greatest work that the Holy Spirit delights in. And it starts by revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. Look with me at verse 13 and 14. We're back in John 16, verses 13 and 14. Read with me again. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then in verse 14 it says, He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, two things strike me about this verse. First is that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. And the second is that he does this by bringing the knowledge of him 
to his disciples. Now, Jesus uses the term, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we can get a clue about what this means when we look back up at verse 13. It sheds some light on this. Um, He says in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, Jesus' disciples were very anxious about some of the difficult things that he was saying saying to them about himself. He kept saying that he was going to go away. And they were sorrowful in their hearts over that. And that he would be delivered up and killed. And they were very confused about the things that he would say concerning himself. And then he would say things like in verse 16. Look down at verse 16. And he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And as he was saying all these very, very difficult things to them, they were, they were perplexed as what he meant by that. Now also, Jesus had told the disciples earlier in John 14, I am the truth. And then here in verse 13, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. That's because the spirit's job is to bear witness to the truth, which is the full revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And we see in verse 13, the Spirit will come and guide them into all the truth about who Jesus Christ is. And now when we read at the end there, in the end of the verse, and it says, he will declare to you the things that are to come. He's not referring to extreme end times apocalyptic events. In all likelihood, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will guide them in understanding the significance of, of what is about to take place in Jesus' death, resurrection, and glorification. And now I think that's incredibly significant in the big picture of the Holy Spirit's relationship with God's people. Because even though these verses are dealing primarily with with the first disciples, it reveals for us that the Holy Spirit is responsible for guiding and helping us, through them, understand the significance of who Jesus Christ is what the significance of his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is. Through them, the apostles, because of the glorious relationship of the Holy Spirit teaching them and guiding them, we have a profound understanding of the amazing significance of Christ's work. Without the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have the first clue as to why Christ's work is amazing and glorious. And this absolutely extends to the writing of the New Testament for us. Remember 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Peter says, the scripture isn't produced by the will of man. By, by what? By men. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus specifically told them that they would be able to remember his words because of their relationship with the Holy Spirit. This is John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And because of this amazing relationship that the Holy Spirit had with the early disciples, we have the Holy Scriptures. 
And it is through the preaching of these very words, these very scriptures, that people come to know and believe in Jesus Christ. In that amazing, the amazing design of God's redemptive plan, it also adds to our Trinitarian understanding of salvation. All three people of the Godhead were needed to save us. And this highlights the Holy Spirit's role in that, of bringing into remembrance and the absolute significance of who Jesus Christ is and inspiring those first apostles and those first disciples of bringing into remembrance all those things that he spoke to him and giving us the scripture. Praise the Holy Spirit. In the word of God, we have an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and the way that he applies the work of Christ to our lives in salvation. And this is one of the greatest ways that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, by applying Christ's redeeming work to his people. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is that he, by the decree of the Father and because of the glorious work of the Son, the Holy Spirit enters into our lives actively invades us and draws us out of our previous life of filth and wickedness and he cleanses us and sanctifies us and creates our union with Jesus Christ. Now there's a whole systematic theology out there that we could spend weeks literally uh, going through to show these things specifically. Uh, But there's one passage that I want to look at this morning uh, that I think really illustrates what I'm getting at. Uh, Turn in your Bibles uh, to the to the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now the advantage of having you guys flip to your Bibles is I get to take a drink of water in between. First Corinthians chapter 6. Look with me uh, starting at verse 9. Paul writes... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the impactful statement right here. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, cleansed from our sin by the blood of Jesus. Sanctified, separated and made holy. And justified, not because of our own righteousness, but because of the glorious work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, on the cross. All of this applied to us, undeserving sinners, by the gracious and Holy Spirit of God. And now his work doesn't stop at just applying salvation to us. Our relationship with him continues as he brings us into fellowship with the body of Christ, his church. All who have the Spirit of God will be drawn to Jesus Christ. That is a fact. And if you are drawn to Christ, you were drawn into his body. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out 
uh, of the Holy Spirit was predicted in the Old Testament. And we see this in passages like Isaiah 32, 14 through 18, and also in Joel 2, 28 through 29. And it's that passage that Peter quotes when he gives his first sermon at Pentecost. And that's where they were talking about the pouring out of the Spirit that would come. And now, it's not like the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the lives of individuals before. He most certainly was. But what's meant by the pouring out of the Spirit is that that activity and special presence of the Holy Spirit would happen in a greater and a much fuller sense that would mark the beginning of the New Covenant age. And we see this realized in the New Testament book of Acts. So flip over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 shows us that there is a special significance to our relationship with the Holy Spirit and the church. When we receive the Holy Spirit, when he invades our lives and brings us into the church, he does two special things. First, he empowers us to bear witness of the gospel. Now, at the beginning of chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost, and they're all gathered together. And in verse 2, we read this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting, where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance to speak and communicate in each other's language. But even more than that, he empowered them And he empowered Peter specifically here to preach the gospel. And we get this amazing first gospel sermon in verses 14 through 39, where Peter draws from the Old Testament prophets and preaches a sermon that links the coming of the Holy Spirit being poured out in the believers, sent by the Father to the salvific work of Jesus Christ. This first sermon is very Trinitarian. It is saturated in Trinitarian theology. And now the second thing that the Holy Spirit does uh, is unifies the church. In verse 41, right after Peter delivers that first sermon, we read that many people were being saved. About 3,000 souls. And in the very next verse, verse 42, we read, And they, those who were saved, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then again, in verse 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit in bringing us together into fellowship with one another, where his presence is felt, has a powerful impact on everyone who walks through that door on Sunday morning. When a visitor comes in to the congregation of the people of God who are unified by the presence of the Holy Spirit, it has a powerful effect on them. When they witness his power working in our lives, when they witness that, producing in us a desire and a delight to be in his presence and exalt Jesus, delighting in singing his praises, delighting in responding to the preaching of the word of God, producing in us a desire to live holy lives, when they see that, it acts as a powerful witness to the world. 
people want to sometimes dismiss their responsibility to witnessing. And they say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to draw them. That is true. But he does it in a manner that uses our relationship with him. And empowers us to bear witness and glorify the Savior by pointing people to Jesus. And you all are a part of that. In closing, my prayer is that we are drawn into a deeper understanding of who the Holy Spirit is in our relationship with him. I know perhaps many of the doctrinal facts talked about today may not be new to most of you, uh, but my prayer is that they take a deeper meaning in our lives. And it changes the way that we speak about him and honor him. And perhaps in understanding that we have a relationship with him, we can turn the mustard back into custard for us. That we don't allow the spellbinders of the world to come in and make the Holy Spirit into some impersonal force or something that is less than the divine spirit of truth who has a loving relationship with us and is active and present in our lives. And see him as someone that we can delight in. So how should we respond? Our relationship with the Holy Spirit should cause us, our hearts, to overflow with praise and worship. We should be amazed by who he is. We should delight in talking about him with others. And not avoid the conversation. And glorify him by helping people better understand his work of who he is. He is our comforter and our helper. He is our guide and our teacher. And he reveals the significance and the glorious work of Christ and allows us to believe the gospel. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit should prompt us to holy living. His sanctifying work in our lives is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The context of that statement comes with an exhortation to truly live the holy life, the new life changed in Christ. Grieving the Holy Spirit is not just about struggling with one particular sin, although that grieves him too. But it has to do with the entirety of your life and the way that you were walking living that new life and walking in holiness. And he empowers us to do that. So we need to stop making excuses. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit should make us eager to see his ongoing work in our life and excited to be a part of the ministry and preaching the gospel to the world. We should be honored in his bringing us together into fellowship with one another. And so we should strive to honor the the unity of the church. And be excited that he has enabled us to bear witness to Christ and preach the gospel. And we should share in his greatest delight, and that is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are amazing. Every time we come into your scriptures, we see more and more amazing things of who you are. Lord, we thank you that you sent the helper. Jesus, we thank you that you sent him to reveal who you are to us. 
Spirit, we thank you that you teach and guide us, that you dwell with us, that your presence is here with us, that even right now you delight in being with your people and drawing us together and exalting Jesus. Lord, help us be more feeling in that. Help us delight in proclaiming Jesus to the world. That we would not hide behind excuses, but Lord, that we would know that we have a relationship with you, that you are empowering us to do that, to exalt his name and to witness to his righteousness and his love for us. Spirit, we ask forgiveness for grieving you. We thank you that you produce in us that desire to live that holy life. And I pray, O oh Spirit, that you enable us, Lord, to walk in a life of holiness. That you would give us that spark and that desire. Not out of fear of punishment, but for love for who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your love for us. We are humbled and we are honored as your people. And we pray, Lord, as we go through this week, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred by this message today, that we would be applying these things to our hearts, Lord, that we just wouldn't forget uh, what you have spoken to us this morning but we would delight in who you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.